My name's Nick. Welcome to Mercy Hill. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you uh, afterwards. We're going to be getting in God's Word here. Um, if you need a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Um, we're in Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 37 to 56, although we'll only take probably the first chunk of that this morning. Um, Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 56. You guys are as amazed as I am how quickly Easter is already upon us. Maybe I feel that more as a pastor than you do, but I'm like, oh my goodness, it is uh, just two weeks away or so. I'll give you a moment to get there. Let's read this and then we'll uh, pray and dive in. So Luke, chapter 9, verses 37 to 56. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. But Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all, is the one who is greatest. But John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Let's pray. God, it's humbling. It's humbling to read about the sins of these 
disciples and the blindness and the foolishness and the ignorance, the arrogance. It's humbling to read all that because it exposes something in us as well. God, it's been my prayer that though in in many ways the, the focus this morning will be on the sin that still remains in us, My hope is that it will have a healing effect as grace touches the wound. Just praying back there with the with the guys before the service, just God that you say your word is is like a two edged sword and it cuts and it pierces and it divides in our own hearts and exposes things and God, it's just my request that though it might hurt going in, I trust that your word, this blade, is is more like a surgeon's scalpel um, than it is the blade of an enemy come to kill or destroy. So here we are opening ourselves before you, just saying, man, you are the great physician. Do work on our hearts. We want to be people that follow you. We want to be people that bring glory and honor to you. We know that sin persists in us, but we know that your grace prevails. Show us that here this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one second. So, I mentioned last week, if you were here, um, we looked at the Mount of Transfiguration, and it was especially moving for me. But one of the things that I brought out um, last week is this mistaken notion that we sometimes have when it comes to the Christian life, and that is that when we come to Christ, um, we are sometimes prone to think, gosh, everything in my life, surely at that point, will start to get better. I repented. I have come back to God. I mean, he's going to fix all the broken stuff in my life. Right? No more relational strife. No more financial woes. No more creaky back. No more leaky faucet. He's going to, I mean, his. I hear about his grace. I hear about his power. It's all just going to go up from here for me. And I'm excited to see it. And then we, we, we come to find out that absolutely this path that we're on is going to end in glory. And joy beyond compare. But the road there is is, will be, marked by hardship and suffering. And it's not always easy. In fact, sometimes we come to Christ and it gets harder. Well, in a similar vein, um, here this morning, our text brings out something else. When we come to Christ, we sometimes have this mistaken notion that You know what? 
Man, I'm coming to the great physician. I'm coming to the one who made the heavens and the earth. Surely he is going to put back together my heart. And all the sin that I once struggled with before won't be an issue anymore. I was an addict. I'll be fully free. I was given over to lust. I will not even look at a woman with lust anymore. I was arrogant and selfish and I'm going to be, man, my wife, my wife is going to be singing Jesus' praise because I'll be down on my hands and he's serving that woman finally, right? That's what we kind of think is going to happen. It's going to be just this glorious uh, transformation overnight. But what we come to find out is that, yes, there certainly is massive transformation. You call it regeneration, you call it conversion, you call it salvation, you call it being born again, you call it being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It is a massive transformation. It is. And it is also going to end ultimately in glory, meaning where we are, we will be fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's where it's headed, absolutely, but... What we're often surprised to find is that along the way, there's a lot of bumps. There's a lot of stuff exposed in me that I thought would be gone by now. There's a lot of struggles. And the way that God gets us to glory sometimes is actually by having to, day in and day out, keep rooting out the sin that still persists. The the flesh that still has us by the ankles. If we ever thought, here's an image for you, um, if we ever thought that there was an elevator <laughs> to glory, as in um, you kind of get in and you go straight up, I think this text and plenty of other texts in the Bible would would point us in another direction. It's not so much an elevator to glory as much as it is kind of like a winding, creaky staircase, right? With a few of the treadboards missing perhaps in places and, 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 and nails coming up. And In other words, it's not just this straight path. It's not just straight up. You and I, whether we want to admit it or not, have a lot of junk still left in our hearts. One of my um, professors at uh, Westminster, he would kind of put it this way when he's talking about sanctification or the process of being uh, transformed morally, ethically into the uh, image of Jesus. Uh, he said sanctification is essentially like this. It's like a man uh, playing with a yo-yo while walking upstairs. What he meant is you're going to go up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And you're going to think, man, I'm going nowhere. But meanwhile, you are, in fact, going up. And you will reach the final destination because of God's grace. And his effort to complete the work he's begun in you. So I think 
This is the sort of thing hinted at in our text here. Now, I recognize that the disciples are in, to some degree, a different, uh, what you might say, a different period or epoch than we are. Um, we are on the other side of the cross now, and the outpouring of the Spirit in a, a fuller measure, a, a higher degree. But nonetheless, these guys had the Spirit at work in their lives. I don't think you drop your, your, your nets and leave your family without your eyes being open. I don't think faith comes without regeneration. However imperfect that faith may be. And so I think what we see here when these disciples is hinting at something in us that, man, the, the, the walk of the disciples is not just going to be this victory, it's going to be a struggle with sin. And we're going to see a lot of stuff in us that we wish wasn't there. In fact, in fact, just like you come to Jesus and sometimes the circumstances in your life, the suffering kind of gets harder, same thing with sin. What we find out is not so much our sin gets worse, but we see a lot more of it. Our eyes are open and now we're going, oh my gosh, the depths of my heart, it just drops out. How deep does it go? I didn't see it before. I thought I was cool. I thought I was great. I thought it was everybody else's problem. Then my eyes are open. I go, wow, look at this. I don't know if I want to see this about me. But he's with us every step of the way. He's with us every step of the way. Remember, Jesus now has been walking with these guys, these disciples, for quite some time. And um, honestly, we would expect that they would be further along than they are, right? Um, we just left the scene where at least three of them, Peter, uh, John, James, uh, they just saw a vision of Jesus in his glory, and it was just sheer bliss for these dudes. And then you would think that from there it's just going to kind of be only up. Here we go. Look at it. They just saw that. I mean, how can you go down from there? How can you forget that? But what we see immediately proceeding is that the narrative carries forward from this point with just kind of a bump and a skid and a fall and a if, I, if, if you're reading it right, I, a face palm. Just like, man, how can these guys be doing this? After they've seen what they've seen in the heart of Jesus that's been exposed to them, how are they saying the things that they're saying in this text and doing what they're doing? We want to laugh at them, but we ought to cry. Because it's telling us not just something about them, but something about us as well. It's exposing the flesh that remains in the heart of God's disciples, God's people. And if you've been in church long enough, or you've had the blinders pulled off, and you realize there's still a lot of sin in this place. And sometimes it can be even nastier than the sin that's out there. It just gets religiously, you know, just gets put into a new context and cleaned up. We should become Pharisees rather than tax collectors and prostitutes, right? That sort of thing can happen. Well, what we'll see, though, is though we want to laugh, but we ought to cry in the end, we can rejoice. So when we watch Jesus' grace prevail with these brothers. Um, the text really comes to us in, in the form of what I would say five vignettes. Um, I think you can even see it the way that the paragraphs are broken down, at least in my uh, ESV version. Um, not one of these vignettes is in any way flattering with regard to the disciples. Every one of them is going to point out some different kind of perspective on the, the sin that still persists in us. But again, 
All along the way, we're going to see Christ's grace prevail uh, for them. This week, we're going to look at the first three vignettes. I'll, I'll show you how I'm breaking those down in a moment. Next week, we'll pick up the, uh, the last two. So, vignette number one, verses 37 to the first part of verse 43. Um, the perspective on our sin, I think we get in this little scene, uh, if I were to put a word on it, uh, would be independence. Independence. There is something in us that trends towards this lie that we can live somehow independently of the God who made us, sustains us, redeems us, supplies us with everything that we need. And yet somehow there's this insanity that turns us away from that towards self-reliance, towards independence. And that's what we see here in this scene. So we remember that Jesus, Peter, Uh, James and John have now descended, like last week I said, from the Mount of Transfiguration into the Valley of Demons. I mean, they are thrust straight away uh, face to face with the demonic. Uh, I'm not going to go into the uh, ins and outs of this story because we've seen Jesus already confronting demons. Uh, We've We've, we've uh, dove into that sort of uh, scene before, but this vignette actually brings out something new, and that's what I wanted to focus on. And it does pertain to the disciples. Um, no surprise that Jesus is victorious over the demon that has this child, this man's child, just locked up. No surprise there. But what I think is highlighted for us is not so much Jesus' victory as much as the disciples' failure. Their inability to do this in spite of Jesus' training, Jesus' example, or even what we saw back in verse 1 of Luke 9, that Jesus has given them, it says, power and authority over all demons. And I just saw him in his glory. They come down and they can't. You see this uh, idea of their inability uh, at the end of verse 40 as, as this man comes to Jesus desperate saying, what? I tried. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. They couldn't do it. In spite of all they'd seen, in spite of all uh, that that Jesus has done for them, and where they know where the source of power is found, they couldn't do it. Now, why do I say that the issue here with their inability, or in this vignette, is this idea of independence? This idea of turning away from God and relying on self. Well, it's hinted at in our text when Jesus responds by saying, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Faithless. What does that mean? But you have removed your faith from me or from God and put it somewhere else, inevitably, invariably, in yourself, one way or another. But the idea of independence actually comes out a lot more clearly when we um, look at Mark's account of this same story. Because at the end of Mark's account, this is in Mark 9, verses 28, 29, at the end of Mark's account, 
the disciples actually roll up to Jesus and go, Jesus, why could we not cast it out? What was the problem? And Jesus tells them. This is his answer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And the majority of manuscripts actually include and fasting. By prayer, and I have no problem saying, and fasting. In other words, why could you not cast it out? You weren't turning to God. You weren't moving outward and saying, God, you got to do this. Not my strength, not my resources, not my power, you. Instead, you guys were turning inward. You guys weren't talking. I mean, who tries to face a demon without praying? Well, they did. Trusting in their experiences. Trusting in their, uh, you know, their wisdom. Trusting in their own resources, their strength. Oh, we've seen Jesus do this. Let me try. It says, therefore, it didn't work. It didn't work. We forget that this war is not against flesh and blood. And therefore, flesh and blood will not have any, uh, <laughs> will not prevail. Uh, instead, the war, the, the, the battle is against the powers and the, and the principalities of darkness, right? We don't have the resources to live the Christian life. We don't have the resources to fight this war. You realize that? The, um, the scene, for some reason, what came into my mind um, as I was preparing this, I haven't seen this movie in forever. But there's this scene at the end of um, the movie The Last Samurai. You can think what you want about it. Uh, it was decent. It's a Tom Cruise flick, so what can you do? Um, but nonetheless, the, there's this scene at the end that I was just this is what we often do. So uh, the, the samurais, right, they are sticking with um, their traditions, and their ancestors, and the battling by way of a sword, right? And meanwhile, while these guys are sticking with that ancestral tradition and, and, and their history, um, technology has advanced, and the enemies now have guns. I mean, the bad guys now have guns. So you watch at the end, and, and, and these guys basically take knives to a gunfight. And there's this tragic scene where they're marching with bravery and, and yeah, you know, all this. And, and they know they're just going to get, they just get mowed over by this guy on a Gatling gun. Just and all these brave, awesome have just gone. They didn't have the resources, in other words, to fight in a, in a, in a gun battle. And so it was tragic. It was... A shame. But what occurred to me is that's often the way we approach the Christian life. It's like, yeah, no, I, I've got what I need. I, I think that, you know, this sword is enough. I'll be able to handle this on my own. I mean, I've already studied the Bible. I don't need all to rely on God constantly. He's already started something good in me. Let's keep it going. I can finish it. 
And then we just, it's tragic. We falter, we fail, we stumble. One of the ways that you can test whether in fact you are kind of trending towards this independence is just to simply ask, am I praying? Am I fasting? I mean, those are two massive indicators of where your heart is going, where you are looking to, what you are looking to for help. When we um, think about what prayer is or what fasting is, I, it, really they're just um, two sides of the same coin as far as I see it. Uh, prayer, on the one hand, is me turning outward and upward. I, I can't do it. I need you to do it. I need your help for this. Fasting just kind of accentuates that, or as I've even said it, I think, here in the past, I see fasting as kind of putting an exclamation point uh, on the end of our prayers. It's a physical way of, of putting an exclamation point on the end of this. So think about what fasting is. It's actually uh, kind of, uh, what would it be, starving yourself? Uh, uh, keeping from yourself the very things that would give you strength physically? It's actually robbing yourself of strength. The idea, therefore, is to say, man, it's not me. I don't need to be strong in this. I need you and your strength. I need your resources. My resources, let's dry them up. Because what I need is God to show up in these moments. So again, back to those questions and think about it a little bit more with me. Are you praying? When you um, are faced with a dilemma in the home or at work or with a relationship, whatever it may be. When you're faced with trouble, do you pray? Where do you go in those moments? Do you go outward and upward? Do you bring these things to the Lord or... Do you scramble? Do you find yourself bending in and scrambling? Looking to your, how am I going to take care of this? You know, like you just imagine these disciples trying to go all like Harry Potter on the demon. Like, what did Jesus say? What were the magic words? We're scrambling to try to figure it out. Uh, uh, I don't remember any of those words that they say in here. <laughs> you know, you, some of you guys probably know those. But the trial, what? We got to come up with something. And we do that. In our Christian lives as well, when we're struggling, when we're faced with things, we go inward. And here would be my suggestion. Turn your inner monologue, because it's always going, into dialogue. Did you hear that? You are always talking to yourself about every situation you're in. How could they do this to me? What am I going to do next? I wonder what I want for lunch. What is that guy doing? Look at him arriving so slow in the left hand lane of the freeway. All of this could be turned into dialogue. You realize? And should be, because we live and breathe and we, we have our being in the presence of God and He's the one who sustains us. You turn that into dialogue. God, what they just did to me, they hurt. 
give me strength. God, I'm, I'm struggling with patience right now with this guy. What is the deal? Can you please help me to be kind as I drive by and pass him in the right? Whatever it is. But we're talking. We're talking concurrently. doesn't mean you're pulling away and you're going to a closet all day long and that's how you know you, you, you're, you're, you're dependent. No, it's happening all day long while you're at work, while you're in the office, while you're in the boardroom, whatever's going on. While you're wiping kids' bottoms and you're struggling, praying outward and upward to God. He's the one who's going to bring the help and we know it. Where we run in those moments is where we think help will be found. So are we running to ourselves or to God? Second question then obviously is, are you fasting? It's this silly kind of irony but I'm not so good at fasting and when I thought about why not so good is an understatement <laughs> when I asked myself why you want to know what I found here's what here's how I here's how I reason this away ah well I got so much on my plate this week or this month or this day I need my strength. It's not going to go well if I'm trying to prepare a sermon and I got kind of this headache because I don't have the proper nutrition for that day. Or I got kind of this grumbly tummy and I'm kind of in a foul mood. I need my strength to get done the things that are on my plate. And you want to know what, what, what uh, this text is saying? It's saying, man, actually it's the exact opposite that you need. Jesus is telling these disciples, essentially, when they are face-to-face with the demonic, and you think, I need all the strength I can get, he says, that's when you need to fast. You need to starve the resources of your flesh so that you are even more dependent on my strength. You see that? We think, I can't because I need my strength. He says, you better because you need my strength. So are we praying? Are we fasting? Jesus is wanting to move us from independence. This independence we're so prone to, to dependence on Him. The reverse maturity of the Christian life. You want to grow up? You become more like a kid. Just needy all the time. Vignette number one, therefore, independence. Now, vignette number two, um, the perspective I think we get on our sin here, I would identify with the word um, deafness. This is verses 43 to 45, kind of the last part of 43 now to 45. Um, Deafness, I would say, is what we see here with these disciples. Uh, Jesus does what his disciples couldn't do. With a word of rebuke, he casts out the demon from this boy, reunites him with his father. Everyone's marveling, but then Jesus turns to his disciples and says this in verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, he's speaking, of course, um, of the cross and of his impending death in Jerusalem. 
And the image he gives us here, I found to be absolutely staggering when you really think about it. I know it's perhaps, if you're familiar with the Bible, it's common language. You're used to hearing the idea of the Son of Man being delivered into the hands of men. But think about this with me for a moment. What in the world is God doing in the hands of men? Think about that image with me for a moment. That the God, Jesus, I mean, God would say, listen, I created the world and everything in it through Jesus. And it's sustained by him. So the God who created the heavens, the earth, and everything in it, especially you and I, the one who we remember back in Eden used his hands to do what? Form us from the dust, breathe life into us. The God who has that relationship with creation, with the universe, with us, is now saying, listen, I'm going to let myself be delivered into your hands. And these hands and our purpose is not going to be to form him and give him life, bring, you know, breathe joy or praise, whatever it is. We're going to take his life, take his breath, try to strike him out of the universe he created. What in the world is God doing in the hands of men? It's crazy. It's unthinkable. But it's the love of God for us. The chain of events here is actually quite illuminating. Um, while everyone is marveling at the majesty of God that they just witnessed when Jesus casts out this demon, heals this boy, restores him, reunites him to his father. I mean, everyone's going, no way. If you look at it, they're astonished. And it's in that context that he immediately speaks of the cross. It's like, Jesus, why you got to be such a downer? Everyone's happy. Now you're talking about dying. What's he doing? He's saying, you want to know where the ultimate victory over the demonic the ultimate victory over over the struggles that we have, the suffering, the ultimate reunification between son and father, child and father. You want to know what how that's going to happen? Calvary. That's where we're going, boys. Let's get ready. He doesn't want them to miss that. That's why he begins with those words. Let these words sink in to your ears. Now I said that the issue we see here is deafness. What we will see with these disciples here, the sin that persists in these moments, is what I would call deafness. And that's because even though Jesus says, don't miss this, let this sink into your ears, we come to find there's something blocking. There's something in the way. It doesn't get through the eardrums. It certainly doesn't reach their hearts. They don't hear it. Um, Verse 45, uh, the first part starts to give us um, an answer to why this is. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time here, but you see it there. They did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them. So that they might not perceive it. Now, the phrase is a bit, or that statement is a bit 
mysterious, enigmatic. Commentators go different ways on it. Who's concealing here? What's that all about? Some would say "Ah, it's God waiting for the right time to reveal. Some would say it's Satan uh, kind of trying to thwart what God's trying to do. Others would say it's perhaps God permitting Satan. I'm not going to go into the various arguments, although I probably lean towards the, the third for various reasons. What I actually want to bring out is what you find in the last part of verse 45. So I think that gives you and I something to look at with regard to ourselves. Because what we see there, the last part, we read this. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. So they heard something. Jesus talking about the cross. They heard something. In fact, in fact... Matthew 17.23, so in Matthew's account of this story, we read that after they heard this saying, they were greatly distressed. In other words, they got something of these words about the Christ being uh, handed over to die. They just didn't like what they had to hear. It didn't fit their paradigm, their categories, their hopes and dreams. And so they didn't want to ask anything else about it. Did you hear that? They heard something. They just didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to press in. They didn't want to know more. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is the convicting point, I think, for us. We have to admit that there is something in us that gravitates towards certain parts of the Bible, certain verses and texts, and that kind of gravitates away from others, other texts, other books, right? Um, This is why people, uh, (laughs) I imagine, uh, get Jeremiah 29.11 uh, stitched into their throw pillows, right? Uh, done up all nice in calligraphy in a frame over their bed. Right, listen to this. Listen to how lovely this is. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Who doesn't want to hear that? Who doesn't want to roll over and, on their bed and see that and be reminded of that? And if you have a proper understanding of it, no problem. Great. Awesome. We hold on to that. I do. But I can guarantee you <laughs> that no one has Jeremiah 29, 15 and following on a pillow or in a frame. Let me read it to you. Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I have vile figs in my yard. They're not pleasant because they did not pay attention to my words. We hear that. We go, that doesn't feel nice. That's not a way to start my morning. With these warnings and threats and judgment. 
Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, tell me more. Let's dive into that. We will ask you about that saying, Jesus. Jeremiah 29, 15 and following. Did you hear something? I didn't hear anything. There's this movement in us away from stuff that doesn't line up with what we really want. What we want to hear, right? We're good at kind of going deaf to that. Okay, we just won't press into whatever that was. I'm going to go back onto watching my show or living my life. But what we come to find out when we press into these harder words, God speaks these things because he loves us. If he warns us, if he instructs us, if he says a hard thing, it's because he loves us and he's trying to prepare us. He's trying to help us stay on the, 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 the narrow path, the way of life. Just think about it with me for a moment with these disciples. I mean, what is Jesus trying to tell them about? The cross! The cross! He's trying to prepare them for the cross, and he wants them to get through it and to know that it's going to be fine, and he wants them to be standing there not thinking that their hopes are dashed, but that, man, our Savior is just about to rise, and it's going to be amazing. Just, you get ready. Break the popcorn out. We're going to watch what he's going to do. So the cross, the message they can't stand to hear, is the very message that we now, we can't hear it enough. Because, listen, God gives the hard word and we might not understand it. We might not like how it feels at first, but if we press in, I'm telling you, you will find there is glory, there is joy on the other side of it. He means good for us in every word that he says. So do we... Are we going deaf to the full counsel of God? Do we tune in to what we want to hear and tune out to what we don't want? Do you have kind of your go-to verses or your go-to books? Like, ah, okay, yeah. Yeah, I know I've been in Philippians for three years, but it's just so nice to read about all the joy that he brings. I don't want to go read those prophets. They're scary. It's not always encouraging reading Jeremiah or reading Isaiah or, or Ezekiel. Or, but I'm telling you, he means good for you in it. And we want to just press into God and say, listen, tell us more. Whatever it is. Here, here are our ears. We're not afraid. We trust you. We're all ears. Do you want to be like that? Whether you want to be like that or not, that's the kind of pastor I hope to be, so I'm going to bring those things from time to time. You may not want to hear, please don't crucify me. I mean it for your good as well. Vignette number three. So, first we saw this tendency we have towards independence. Now we saw um, this tendency we have towards deafness. Uh, Finally, the last one I want to look at here is Um, This idea of rivalry, vignette number three, this is verses 46 to 48. Again, the word I would put on it is rivalry, competition, comparison. Who's the greatest? This is uh, perhaps where things get particularly ugly, and it just gets uglier from here. I'm sorry to say it. 
An argument arose among them, verse 46, as to which of them was the greatest. Stop. Now you just, again, cannot miss the chain of events. The way that Luke strings these things together, the way that we watch this narrative unfold. It's part of the reason why it's, it seems to me that it just gets worse and worse. Because you just watch this and you go, are you serious? I mean, does it get any more, again, irony just fills this, this text. Does it get any more ironic than this? That Jesus would go, let this sink into your ears. I'm going to die for you. And they go, yeah, but who's the greatest? Okay, Jesus, uh, you're going to die. Yeah, we're all going to die at some point, whatever that means. But can we get to the, the real pressing matter at hand? Who's the greatest? I mean, the apostles, the disciples, and I, we, we've, we've had this kind of ongoing debate, and we finally kind of want to settle it. Peter thinks he's the greatest because, you know, he keeps calling back to how you changed his name from, from Simon to the Rock. And who doesn't want to be the Rock? That sounds awesome. That guy is awesome. All his movies are amazing. <laughs> He's talking about the name change. He's talking about he was the first one to confess you as Lord. He's talking about something crazy he got to see on that mountain you went up to last night. We weren't there. He's talking about how he can't tell us because it was so cool. We couldn't even comprehend it. But I don't know. Then James and John chime in and they think they belong at the top. I mean, they think they're the ones that should be at your right and your left when you come again in your kingdom. But I heard Matthew talking. He chimed in. You want to know? He said, he said listen, my testimony is, is more profound than any of yours. And you know what? I'd have to say, I guess he's kind of right. The guy was a tax collector. He was a thief. He was a traitor. Now he's on team with the Messiah. That is better than any of us, I suppose. So maybe he has a point. But then Bartholomew chimes in. And he says, listen, my name is Bartholomew. What more do you need? <laughs> I don't know anything else about that guy except his name, and that's enough to make him the greatest. Bartholomew. Anyways, it does seem almost comical, right? It, it almost seems like this is a joke, like it's something to laugh at. But at the end of the day, it's not merely comical, it's convicting. Because this is the stuff that I do. I will never forget these words I'm about to read you. I will never forget these words that John Stott wrote to preachers in his book, Between Two Worlds. You want to know why I won't forget them? Because they so resonate with where I'm at, with what I struggle with. Let me read this to you. Pride is without doubt the chief occupational hazard of the preacher. It has ruined many and deprived their ministry of power. In some, it is blatantly obvious they are exhibitionists by temperament and use the pulpit as a stage on which they show off. Other preachers are not like these Nebuchadnezzars, however. For their pride does not take the form of blatant boastfulness. It is more subtle, more insidious, and even more perverse. 
For it is possible to adopt an outward demeanor of great meekness while inside our appetite for applause is insatiable. At the very moment when in the pulpit we are extolling the glories of Christ, we can in reality be seeking our own glory. And when we are exhorting the congregation to praise God and are even ostensibly leading them in praise, we can be secretly hoping that they will spare a bit of praise for us. We need to cry out with Baxter, Richard Baxter. Oh, what a constant companion. What a tyrannical commander. What a sly, subtle, and insinuating enemy is this sin of pride. The words that stuck out, there's constant companion. It's always just right there. And it's not just right there with the preacher, okay? It's right there in the pew. Almost every epistle, Paul or Peter, these guys write, has to do with conflict within the church and the backbiting and division and the pride and the way that we use the message of the cross and then the church as a platform for our own glory. We like to think that if we can get people from the world into the church, All the problems will be solved. But oftentimes what we come to find out is that we just bring the same kind of self-worship and junk that we were doing out in the world with us into the church. We just kind of now sanitize it. It looks prettier, but it's the same garbage at heart. So we're out in the world, our self-worship just looked like, hey, Sexual promiscuity, if I want it, I get it. Stealing, money-grubbing, lying, drunkenness, whatever, you name it, just doing what I want. Well, in the church, it just takes on a different look. Now that kind of sin, that self-worship, just looks like, hey, if I give, I want to make sure I'm seen. But see this? If I pray, I want to make sure I'm heard. If I preach, I want to make sure I'm praised. Why do I study my Bible? Well, it's so that I know more than the next guy, so that when Bible trivia rolls around, I feel good about myself, or I get a bunch of people coming to me for answers. That feels good. We use the message of the cross for our own glory. It's the same junk of the world now dressed up in its Sunday best. Jesus' remedy for this and his disciples, this and you and I, is to hold a child out in front of him, in front of us. It's awesome. We read this in verses 47 to 48. If you're worried, we're almost done. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And we've got to understand that in those days, um, children were not romanticized or idealized, kind of like maybe they are today. They weren't seen as like the 
this, these wonderful, innocent little things and all this stuff, they were just kind of seen as a burden until they could contribute and work. They're just another mouth to feed. They were seen as unimportant. And so what Jesus is doing is saying, listen, the child is going to, this child is going to be a test to where your heart's really at. The person who has no time for this child made in God's image, the person who has uh, no interest in serving the needs of this child because the child's not going to add to their image. The child's going to probably take away from their image. The child's not going to give them any return for their service. There's going to be no praise coming at the end of whatever you do. He says, if you can't do that, then listen, you don't yet get where we're going here. You don't yet get what I've come to do. Because what we start to see is, man, the Christian is the one who knows I'm loved by God. The Son of Man was delivered into the hands of men for me. He came not to serve or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for my sins. Therefore, I have the praise of God. I have glory waiting for me. I have the full approval of my maker, who is also my husband, my redeemer. I don't need the praise of man. I don't need things from other people. I don't need to push up on the shoulders of others to make myself look great. I can get low. Who cares if they see me? God sees me and He loves me and I know Christ. I can hang with the kids. It doesn't hurt my ego. It actually brings me joy. Jesus is moving us away from rivalry towards this kind of humble service by way of the cross. And that's where I'll end with you. Um, Here's my closing point. I'm going to elaborate a lot more on the grace that prevails next week. This week, all I want you to notice is Jesus sees all this in his disciples and he doesn't leave them. He doesn't leave them. You get that? He doesn't say, man, that's it. Cut from the team. You are an embarrassment. You are a shame to my name. I can't deal with this anymore. You are a burden. Get off my back. I refuse to to use you anymore in this ministry. No, you don't see any of that. In fact, Luke 10, you want to know what he does? Puts them back out on the mission field as his ambassadors. He's not going to turn away from these brothers, even though he sees the depths and beyond the depths, even in this text, of their heart, and the sickness that still clings. He's not going to turn away from them. He's not going to turn away from us. He doesn't set his face away from us. Instead, what we read there in verses 51 and 53 is that he sets his face towards Jerusalem. Where he knows he's going to go. This is the major turning point in Luke's gospel. 
sets his face towards Jerusalem where he knows he's going to go and he's going to die for these brothers. You see, sin persists in us. It's nasty. It's stubborn. But in a sense, you could say, man, his grace is even more stubborn. He's not going to let it have the last word in yours or my life. So I don't know if as I was kind of going through these three vignettes, talking about independence, talking about deafness or rivalry, you were going, well, shoot, that's me, that's me, that's me. I just want you to know, I think this sort of, this sort of thing is in our Bibles so that we're not scared to own it. Thinking that God is going to turn away from us. We're not scared to own it, thinking that somehow... Um, it will mean we can't be a part of the church. These are the, these are the apostles we're looking at. In a sense, you're in good company. And we can own it, we can confess it, we can be sure that though our sin persists, His grace will prevail. Let's pray. God, thank You that You take our sin... And though you, you, you don't deal with it lightly, though you don't approve of it, though we see even in our text, you say, oh, foolish, uh, or I'm sorry, oh, faithless generation. And you say, man, you, you, you rebuke uh, James and John for some of the things that they say. And you take sin in us seriously. God, we also know that, 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 that your grace prevails, that you don't turn from us. You take it seriously because it's destroying us and you love us. And if you don't identify it in us and help us, we will go down with the ship. You're on a rescue mission and it, it begins at conversion, but it continues even into this day with us, Lord, as, you, as you're rooting out the stuff that still remains in our hearts. God, we give you our hearts now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.